All right, good morning, everyone. First of all, I hope that everyone had a, a beautiful and uplifting and meaningful Yom Tiv. You know, part of the, uh, part of the beauty of the Yom Tiv of Shavuos, in general, our Yom Tiv Tovim are not, you know, days in which we remember historical events. But our Yom Tiv Tovim are days in which we remember historical events in order to extract contemporary meaning and change the way we live in the present. So hopefully, all of us in our own way and on our own level, we're able to re-receive the Torah. We're able, Amir Hashem, to have our own Maimed Harsina, our own Sinaitic revelation, to re-energize our bonds with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to re-energize our bond with our Kehillahs, with our people, and Amir Hashem, to re-energize our bond with ourselves as well. And Amir Hashem, now go into the coming months, go into the coming months, hopefully with a renewed sense of purpose, as, uh, as Mr. Shulman just mentioned, you know, we, we, we kind of look at the events unfolding all around us. And, you know, some, someone sent me a message today saying that, you know, Lagba Omer wasn't Lagba Omer. And Shavuos wasn't Shavuos. But Halabai should be Zohar that Tishabov is not going to be Tishabov. You know, there's, there is something unfolding in the world around us. And there's something, there's some dramatic upheaval that we see and we see what's happening with our brothers and sisters in Eretz Yisrael and whatever happens in Eretz Yisrael impacts us no matter what the geographic distance is and we see that something something is afoot you know we thought that the world was turned upside down with the pandemic and then we see even as the pandemic Baruch Hashem begins to wane and begins Emir Hashem to exit the stage so much upheaval so many events but Hadavai Emir Hashem we know that Echlish Baruch Hu runs the world. We know that he always has an incredible plan, much, much better than we could ever understand or comprehend. And the Mirat Hashem, we hope that the path to the Geula and the path to Shalom and the path to Nechama will the Mirat Hashem be very short. And Halavai, we should reach that destination, Bekarov. So being that, I think, you know, as Mr. Shulman mentioned, we're not sure, again, exactly which day it is. I figure I can get away one more time with doing something a little bit Shavuos related and to spend one more shir on Megillas Ros. And I feel it's not really a departure from Sefer Tehillim because the truth is, if you really want to understand Tehillim, you know, in general, people think that it was Sigmund Freud who was the first person to discover that your relationship with your parents makes you who you are and has a profound impact on the way that you live. Chazal understood this long before that. And in fact, if you really want to truly understand who David HaMelech was, so much of the Davidic personality emanates from his grandmother, emanates from Rus. And so many of the qualities that Rus possessed were manifest in her grandson. And in fact, so much of the Davidic monarchy is really based on who Rus was. She didn't realize this. She was just being who she was. But as we go through Megillas Rus, and again, as we go through our Sefer Tehillim, we begin to see the connections and they're quite profound. And I'd like to focus on one of those connections this morning. So let's begin with number one. So there's a beautiful Yalkut Shemoni. So Yalkut Shemoni writes, Amr Zira, Migilas Rus, Ein Ba Lo Toma Velo Tara, Lo Hatar Velo Iser. Migilas Rus is an interesting Megillah because at the end of the day, and I often feel, you know, sometimes Megillas Rus, truth is most of the Megillas don't really get their fair share. Like think about it just a moment. You read Megillas Rus yesterday. And for those of you who were in shul, you may have noticed that it's a pretty long davening. Baruch Hashem, between Hallel, Yisker, there's a duchening, there's a lot going on. So often kind of Rus is something we do. We try to follow along with the Valkore as he's running through it, but there's virtually no ability to even absorb the true profundity of the story. So the Alkut says, why do we read Megillas Rus? And for that matter, what's the purpose of Megillas Rus? What does it teach us? It doesn't have any laws of ritual purity and impurity. It doesn't have any laws regarding that which is permitted, that which is prohibited. Velama nichtava. So why was it written? Why was it written? So of course, if you remember again our shir before Shavuos, we spoke about the idea that one of the primary reasons that Megillas Rus was written was as a Sefer Yuchsin, a family tree, a genealogical testament for King David, because those who tried to discredit David Amalek tried to say that he wasn't Jewish. So Shmuel Hanavi writes Megillas Rus, 
in order to show David HaMelech's yichos. But the Yalkut's asking kind of on a more global level, because that's it, a whole book of Tanakh is included, a whole Megillah is included in Tanakh because it asserts David HaMelech's yichos, it asserts his genealogy. That's strange. Everything that's in Tanakh teaches us something. So what does Megillah's Rus teach us? To which the Yalkut answers quite profound, second line in source number one, the entire essence of Megillah Rus is to teach us the reward for those who are Gomlech Hasadim, for those who perform acts of charitable kindness. The entire essence of Megillah Rus is to teach us the power of Chesed. There are no halachas that are taught there, there's no Tumantarab, there's no Heter Ve'iser. It is simply to teach us the power the importance and the profundity of chesed. And again, this once we read the story, this becomes very obvious. If you take a look at number two, so remember again, when Boaz first meets Rus, so what does he say to her? Vayan Boaz Emerla, who gave who godly kala sher asis is chamosech, achare mosi sheikh, vataazvi avich vi imech, veeris moladetech, vatelchi al amasher lo yadat, Remember again, interestingly enough, Boaz comes to his field. He sees this young woman gleaning, picking up the gleanings in his field. He asks his, he asks his workers, who is this girl? And they tell her, they tell him, excuse me, this is Rus. And Boaz introduces himself to Rus. And how does he introduce himself to her? He tells her, I've heard of you. It's incredible. Boaz says to Rus, Boaz, the most famous man in Eretz Yisrael, says to Rus, a Moabite convert, a young girl with nothing, oh, I've heard of you. And why have I heard of you? Because everyone tells the story of your incredible chesed. That after your husband died and after you lost everything, you decided to go ahead and accompany your elderly mother-in-law to Eretz Yisrael. So again, from the beginning, it's quite incredible. Rus's entire, it's very interesting, Rus's entire persona is one of chesed, right? In other words, people didn't hear of her piety per se. People don't know from, not from piety. But we know that Rus, everyone heard of this chassid. And if you take a look at number three, so this is really focusing on an episode that we made reference to in our last year. Remember again, this is, this is in the aftermath of the story when Rus sneaks into the granary under the cover of night, lays down at Boaz's feet, takes off his shoes and hints to him, alludes to him that he should marry her. So he says to her, Vayoma brucha atla Hashem biti, hetaft chasdecha acharon min arishon, levilti lachas acharia bacharim im dalve imashir. So it's interesting. So Boaz says to Rus, you, my daughter, you should be blessed. This latest chassad is even greater than your first chassad. And if you look at number four, the Ebenezer writes as follows: Chazdei cha'achal min arishon, she asta chassad im baila, kasher amran naami kiracho kishov kirachoku shuv alas gairo. So again, so Boaz makes reference. You've been a bala. You've been a bala's chesed this entire time. So remember, you did a chesed with your mother-in-law in the beginning. Now you want to do another chesed. This goes to the motif in general that that Rus was looking to marry Boaz. I think I mentioned this in our last year because it was a form of yibum, a form of leveret marriage, where ultimately, again, because her husband, Rus's first husband, had died without children, so she was trying to create some type of legacy for her now deceased husband. So incredibly, so what Boaz says is, Rus, your chesed, your kindness is absolutely overwhelming. You do kindness with the living, you do kindness for the dead, you are just the consummate Baalas Chesed. And the Medrash in number five says, and I'll tell you this outside, the Medrash says something incredibly beautiful. The Medrash says, Hatorah So here the Medrash highlights the fact, the value that Chesed has within our religion. He says, the beginning of the Torah is Chesed, the end of the Torah is Chesed, and the middle of the Torah is Chesed. How so? So the Gemara says, Tchilas Chesed Minayin. So the Gemara, the Mishnah Medrash says, Where do you see Chesed in the beginning of Torah? And the Medrash relates, Atamotse, Kishiyatra, Kodesh Baruch Hu Chava, Kishta Vevila Adam. This is really actually quite beautiful. 
the beginning is chasad. So it, it, it's actually very interesting because one would have thought that the first act of chasad in the Torah would have been the very act of creation. But yet that's not what the Torah mentions. Instead, instead, the Medrash writes that the first act of chasad was the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created Chava and interesting Lashon is Kishta. He literally, he adorned her and brought her to Adam. So the first act of chesed that is recorded in the Torah is that the Ribbama Shal Olam created a partner for Adam Arishon. That was the first chesed, the most profound chesed that HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not go ahead and make man live a life of isolation or solitude. He created Chava. The end of the Torah is chesed, Torah tells us, because ultimately, again, when Moshe Rabbeinu passed away, the Ribbono Shal Olam himself buries Moshe. Burying the dead is the most fundamental act of chesed. Remember, again, because we've spoken about this before, that chesed in general is not necessarily altruistic because when you do something nice for someone, there's always the possibility of reciprocity. But the kindness you do for the dead is the highest form of chesed for there is no hope of repayment. So the end of the Torah, the last episode of the Torah is the death of Moshe Rabbeinu. And who buries Moshe Rabbeinu? None other than the Ribbono Shal Olam himself. So at the beginning of the Torah's chesed, that Hashem created Adam for Chava and Chava for Adam. That's the chesed in the beginning of the Torah. The end of the Torah is chesed, that Hashem went ahead and buried Moshe Rabbeinu. And what about the middle? It's actually quite beautiful. The Medrash says, The middle of the Torah, now middle doesn't literally mean middle, but rather it means somewhere, not in the beginning, not in the end. Because the example it brings is Avram Avinu. What happened with Avram Avinu? This is beautiful. So where's Chesed in the middle? Chesed in the middle is we know in Parshas Vayera. Avram Avinu has done his bris milah at an advanced age. The Ribbono Shal Olam comes to do bigger cholim. Comes to do bigger cholim. Comes to visit the sick. Now that by itself is an act of chesed. Right? That by itself is gemilas chasadim. Yet the Medrash understands that the real chesed was that Hashem went ahead and... <clears throat> Hashem came to Avram. When the Shekhinah appeared to Avram, Avram Avinu was ready to rise. And Hashem said, no, sit. Sit. That, 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 that was the chesed. So I have chesed in the beginning, the chesed of companionship, chesed at the end, chesed for the dead, and ultimately chesed in the middle, the chesed of Hashem telling Avram Avinu not to stand up, not to get up when the Shekhinah appeared to him. It happens to be just as an aside, just as an aside, each of these examples, each of these examples really highlight different elements of chesed, right? Think about this. What does the Torah in the beginning teach us? Did you know one of the most profound forms of chesed is just being there for someone, just being present companionship. You know, sometimes I know that someone is having a difficult time in life and we often think that we have to know the right things to say, right? You see this all the time also, see this all the time also at um, Shiva homes. People come to pay a Shiva visit and people feel compelled to say something like profound or compelled to say something, you know, that someone's going to bring nechama, going to bring consolation. Most times when a person has experienced loss, especially when it's Shiva and the loss is fresh, there aren't too many words of real consolation that one could deliver. So what's the point of a Shiva visit? The entire point is companionship. It's just to be there, just to sit opposite the person. That's why the halacha is that if the avel, if the mourner does not say anything, the visitor should not say anything either. If the mourner just wants to sit and just wants the companionship, the visit, as, as awkward as sometimes that is for people, because it's an awkward silence, sometimes I'm not there to tell the avel some type of profound theological insight that is going to remove the pain of loss and suddenly realize and allow them to as the entire purpose of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's creation. The reason, so what, what Adam and Chava, what that first act of chesed teaches us, sometimes the greatest chesed you could perform for someone is just being there for them. And think about this, for, I, I think we could all relate this in our own lives because we've all had our struggles in different ways. And sometimes the most profound things that people have done for us 
is just being present in the midst of a difficult time. I don't necessarily remember something that they said or something that they did. I just remember that they were there. So that first act of chesed, Rechel Shbaruch creates Adam for Chava, Chava for Adam companionship. Adam doesn't have to be alone. Chava doesn't have to be alone. That's chesed. Of course, again, at the end of the Torah is chesed shal emes. That's the ultimate chesed. Kedush Baruch Hu buries the dead, the highest form of chesed. And interestingly enough, the chesed, the chesed of Adam Avinu teaches you that what is chesed? Chesed is actually being there to help benefit the individual. You know, sometimes, sometimes we do chesed, but the truth is we're really doing something for ourselves and not really doing something for the other. You know, is a big Yitzhahara, even in, uh, even in chesed. You know, that's why sometimes the worst machlokis that occurs in Jewish communities is sometimes centered around organizations and people who do good work. It's incredible how much machlokis comes up with chesed, with chavakadisha, with this and that, because sometimes we do the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. And so Hashbaruch appears to Armavinu, and Hashem says to Avram, I'm not here for me. I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. So don't stand up. Sit down. I'm, I'm here not to make myself God feel good. I'm here not because I want to be the Baal Chesed. I'm here to come and to help you. So you sit. So we learn three elements of Chesed. Chesed for the dead, end of the Torah, purely altruistic, highest level of Chesed. The Chesed ultimately, again, of really being there for someone. All right, be, when, then when, I, when I go to do something for someone, do it for them. Don't do it for you. That's Hashem and Avram. And the chesed of companionship. That's the chesed of, of Adam and Chava. But here's what's incredible. So therefore, if we kind of tie this all together, so we now have the Al-Kuchimone that teaches us that Megillah Rus doesn't teach me any halachas. I, by the even that statement is not totally true. There are some halachas, interestingly enough, that we don't do learn from Megillah Rus, but the essence of the Megillah is not to teach us any halachas. So if it doesn't have any halachas, why is it there? So the Medrash writes, the Al-Kushman writes, to teach us chesed. So, but now we have an obvious question, which is we have other sources of chesed. I don't need Megillah Rus to teach me the power of chesed. First of all, I just showed you the Medrash Tanchuma. Granted, we did it outside, right? But I just showed you the Medrash Tanchuma that the Torah itself is replete with episodes of chesed. Beginning of chesed, middle of chesed, end of chesed. So why do I need Megillah Rus to teach me about chesed if I have a Torah that teaches me about chesed? What, what's unique about the chesed which is being taught to me in the context of Megillah Rus. So I want to show, show you something amazing. So if you take a look at number six, the way the Megillah ends, this is the last part of the Megillah, and it's, it's really incredibly beautiful and dramatic. So the Megillah says, The evil told those parrots, parrots holides chesron, chesron holides ram, ram holides aminadav, aminadav holides nachshon, nachshon holides salmo, Salmon holy is Boaz. This is really the part that matters us in Megillah. So Boaz, Boaz holy is Oved. Oved holy is Yishai. The Yishai holy as David. So here is the family tree, right? Boaz to Oved, Oved, Yishai, Yishai, David. That at the end of the day, Megillah's Ross is the story of the beginning of our monarchy. And what is the job of the monarch? It's an interesting idea. What is the job of the Jewish monarch? You see, I want to point out something very interesting, which is that if you notice in Judaism, we have a division of roles. We have Shevet Levi and Shevet Yehuda. Shevet Yehuda, the tribe of Judah, that's where monarchy comes from. And Shevet Levi are Kohanim and Leviim. So interestingly enough, Shevet Levi is the seat of religious leadership. And yet Yehuda is the seat of the monarchy, which tells us that to a certain degree, the king is not the religious leader. He's not the religious leader. Now, again, the king has to be righteous and the king has to be a tzaddik and the king has to be a moral compass. But Kashbarahu purposely divides between what we call political leadership or military leadership or monarchical leadership and religious leadership. In fact, interestingly enough, you know where this, uh, this kind of came to a head is in the aftermath of the Hanukkah story, the Hashmonoim, who were Kohanim, took the monarchy for themselves as well. And the truth is, it really didn't end well because the Hasmonian kings, the Hashmonoim monarchy, over time becomes unfortunately very corrupt. 
Very corrupt. So the Cheshbaruch Hu and his wisdom understood let's keep monarchy and religious leadership separate. So what is the role of the king? If it's not to be the religious leader because that's Shevet Levi, wherein lies the responsibility of the Melech? And if you take a look at Yeshayo in number seven, Yeshayo says something very profound. V'huchan b'chesed kisei v'yashav alav b'emes ba'ohel David shofet v'dorish mishpat umihir tzedek. So Yishayahu says it. You know what the king does? Bahuchan bechesed kisei. The job of the king is to establish his throne with chesed. If you take a look at the Ebenezer Ezra in number eight, Bahuchan bechesed bavora chesed kisei amlucha ba'adavid hi Yerushalayim. Do you know? So Yishayahu says, you know what the job of the king is? The job of the king is to be a bal chesed. That is the job of the king. Now, how, how does the king do that? What does the king do? The king's going to go out and stand by the street corners and cross every old lady across the street. That's the king's going to do. He's, he's got a country to run. But what it means is the king is supposed to somehow model the value of chesed for his constituents. And it makes perfect sense. Because how do you build a society? How do you build a just society? How do you build a holy society? Chesed, Olam Chesed Yibaneh, right? Chesed is the foundational pillar. So the king, whose job it is to build a meaningful and orderly society, his primary responsibility is to model Chesed to the masses. And if you take a look at number nine, so the Gemara Ba'abasra says as follows, Shmuel Kasav Sifro V'shoftim Verus. So again, the Gemara says, Ba'abasra says that Shmuel Hanavi, Shmuel Hanavi wrote Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Beis, and the book of Shoftim, and Megillas Ros. Shmuel Navi was a prolific writer. He wrote all of these different svarim. And in number 10, this is from a beautiful Sefer Tal de which is written by Rabbi Vigdar Nevenzal Shlita, one of, the, one of the great Rabbanim in the old city of Yerushalayim. And he writes as follows, Madua Dafka al Shmuel Sharsa Ruach HaKodesh Vekasav Megillazu. Why was it, why was it Dafka Shmuel Hanavi who wrote this Megillah? Well, why, why Shmuel writing Megillas Ros? Mishum Shumimana as David Lamelech, because remember, Shmuel was the one who anointed David as the king. Asher Kise, Asher Kiso Omed Al Basis Shel Chesed. David is the king, and his primary job as the king is to create a throne which is fundamentally rooted in Chesed. Lochim, Shmuel Hamechen as Kise David. Kosev Games Habasis Lamalchus Beis David Basis Shel Gamilos Chasodim. So this is incredible. Shmuel Hanavi, who was the anointer of the king, right? Shmuel actually anointed two kings. He anointed Shaul, and then he anointed then he anointed David as well. So the fact that Shmuel anoints David, Shmuel also writes Megillas Ros, because essentially what the Gemara says, what the Navi Shaul is saying is. What was the point? What's the point of the Malchus? So Shmuel, you are anointing the first dynastic monarch, or the only dynastic monarch, right? David Malchus was not just king, he was the founder of a dynasty. What is the job of the monarch? What is the job of the monarchy? Chesed. All about Chesed. And what's the book of Chesed? That's Rus. So Shmuel anoints David, and Shmuel writes Megillas Rus to show David what his primary responsibility is as the monarch. Incredible, incredible. So what we have over here, if we kind of bring this all together, is we have the idea that Megillas Ros is all about chesed. That's why it's written. I, you'll ask, but one second. The Torah also teaches us chesed. Torah is chesed in the beginning, Torah is chesed in the middle, Torah is chesed at the end. So the Torah teaches us the value of chesed. Why do Megillas Ros? Oh, Megillas Ros teaches me the need or the mandate of the monarch to be a Baal Chesed. What is the job of the monarchy? To set the tone for acts of charitable kindness for the general masses, which is really, if you think about it, such a, such a profound insight into the Jewish conception of monarchy, which I think stands in contradistinction, contradistinction to to a lot of the world's view of monarchy. What does a monarch do? Okay, you can, safety, security, political leadership. But I'll tell you something interesting. Do you know where you find this? It's actually fascinating. You find this by the, the English monarchy, right? In the United Kingdom, you find it's interesting. Like, what does Queen Elizabeth do? 
What, what, what does she do? What, what does Prince Charles do? So it's fascinating. What do they do? I, I have to be fascinated. It's because the truth is, like, there's no real malchus in, in this world. And it's actually interesting that the English still respect monarchy. It wouldn't work anywhere else. Because I think almost nowhere else in the world is there, like, a respect for leadership or for ancient traditions. So literally, what do the You could Google this afterwards. What does Queen Elizabeth do all day? Right? Put it in Google. And it's amazing. You know what they do? They're like charity event after charity event, right? The uh, the Royal Association for Bird Watchers, conservation of the killer whales of the orcas, but then like meaningful things like wounded veterans, you know, healthy. It's amazing that that's literally now again. Obviously, it's different because I don't think they have any real power anymore. But it's it's fascinating to see. So what does the monarchy do? Literally, they fill their day with chesed, which 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 is really quite striking. But what's even more striking about it was we had that first, we had that first, and that was the, that's always been the primary mandate of Jewish monarchy, to be Baalei Chesed. To be Baalei Chesed, ultimately to be the kind of people who set the tone. Again, I want to be clear, the king is not running to do bigger cholim all day, right? And the king is not actually running, the, the king has to run a country, right? And the king has to oversee the military. But the idea of the king in some way sets the tone for chesed for the kingdom. That's his role. And the whole reason why Shmuel Hanavi writes Megillas Ros is because Shmuel, the one who anointed David as king, writes the very story which becomes the mandate for Davidic monarchy. David, just like your grandmother, was the consummate Baalas Chesed, so so too your obligation as king and the obligation for all future kings, ultimately, again, is to be Baalei Chesed. Incredible. But I want to show you something else as well, because it's not... Still, still it begs the question of, so why, why Rus? Like, why does this, that lesson come out in Megillah's Rus? In other words, the Torah could have also been more explicit about this. And when the Torah speaks about the king, the Torah could have also gone ahead and told us that the job of the king is to be a Baal Chesed. So is there perhaps something additional embedded in here as well? So if we take a look at number 11, there's actually something quite beautiful. The, if you take a look at number 11, so this is in the beginning of Megillah Rus, the beginning of the story, where, remember, Naomi and Elimelech have left Kena'an, left Eretz Yisrael, gone to Moab in an effort to preserve their wealth, right? They don't want to lose their wealth supporting the, the hordes of, indig- uh, of, of indigent people during regional famine. So they go to, they go to Midian, I'm sorry, to Moab. They go to Moab, and that's where their sons, Machlon and Kilion, Marry two girls, and the, 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 the Megillah says, "Vayisul lahem nashim moavios shem haachas arpa v'shem hashemis rus vayeshvu sham keaser shanim." Okay, so the Megillah tells us that Machlon and Kilion married Moabite girls. Fine. Take a look at twelve. Couple of weeks later, v'tashiv naami v'rus hamoavia kalasa ima shavim istei Moab. Right, so what happens now at this point in time? Remember, Elimelech died, Machlon and Kilion died, so Arpa went back home, and now Rus comes with Naomi to Eretz Kinan. Okay, one more piece of information. Number 13. Now, again, so number 11 is when we're introduced to Rus, and she's called Rus HaMoavia, Rus the Moabite. Number 12 is when Rus comes back with Naomi to Kenan, and she is still referred to as Rus HaMoavia, Rus the Moabite. In number 13, this is the end of the Megillah already, towards the end. This is when Boaz decides to marry Rus, and he tells everybody, I'm going to marry Rus HaMoavia, Rus the Moabite. And there's an obvious question. Everyone knows that the halacha, when it comes to a person who converts, is what? That we do not go ahead and remind them of their Gentile past. The goal is that when someone converts, 
they become part of the Jewish community. They're not, not an outsider, not a convert. You're Jewish. You're Jewish. And there, there, is, no, there is no qualification to that. Right? In fact, again, the halacha is to remind a convert of their Gentile past is an avira. Now, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. The convert could speak about it all that they want. But we, the community, are not permitted to go ahead and bring that up because that will cast the, that will cast the convert as an outsider. Yet, isn't it fascinating? Isn't it fascinating that every single time the Megillah refers to Rus, she is always referred to as Rus HaMoavia. So now again, I understand the first time, because again, in source number 11, which is when we're first introduced to Rus, she, right, she wasn't Jewish. Again, according to most opinions, when Machlon and Kilion married Rus and Arba, they were not Jewish. So she's introduced us as a Moabite girl. By the time you come to number 12, and Rus is coming back with Naomi to Kinan, she has already converted. And yet we're still calling her Rosa Moavia. And certainly by the time we get to number 13, which is chapter 4, the end of Megillah's Rus, Boaz is marrying Rus. He's marrying her. Right? Boaz was the most important Jew in Klav Yisrael at that time. He was the Shofit. He was the judge. His name that he was known by was Ifzan. He's marrying this girl. And yet, the Megillah still calls her Hamoavia, the Moabite. Why? So if you take a look at number 14, the Torah tells us about our general view of Moab. And the Torah says, Lo yavo amoni adolam. We do not accept converts from the nation of Moab. Now it happens that this is talking about men, not women. But why do we, why do we have such a negative disposition towards Moab? Why don't we go ahead and accept converts from the nation of Moab? Two reasons, the Torah says. Number one, because when, you were, when we were leaving Egypt and we passed by the nation of Moab, they did not come out to greet us with bread and water. And not only that, they hired Bilam. Bilam, right, the Gentile prophet, to curse us. So therefore, again, a Kaddish Baruch who says, we don't like Moab, and therefore we don't go ahead and let the men. This is a prohibition dafka on the men. So Rus was able to go ahead and convert, but as a prohibition on the men, we do not accept converts from the nation of Moab. Why not? Again, because they did not come out to greet us with bread and water when we were leaving Egypt. The Medrash number 15 writes as follows. The Medrash writes, And again, the Medrash here writes, Okay, you know what? So here, I just want to point out what's fascinating about this. What happens if a member of the nation of Amalek wants to convert? An Amalekite wants to convert. Do we accept him? Do we accept an Amalekite as a convert? And the answer is yes. If he's sincere and he passes the conversion threshold, yes. So isn't this incredible? Amalek, who's the arch enemy of the Jewish people. So if, he, if an Amalekite wants to convert, we'll accept him. Yet, if a person from Moab wants to convert, ultimately you won't accept him. Why? Because when we were coming out of Egypt and we passed through Moab, they did not offer us bread and water. And says the Medrash, so I don't understand why. Okay, so they're not hospitable. They're not nice. But because of that, we can't let them convert. The Medrash says, yes, do you know why? Because their failure to offer us bread and water was a fundamental lack of gratitude. Remember again, Moab comes from where? Moab comes from Lot, specifically again from the incestual union between Lot and his daughters. Remember again, Moab is a contraction of two words, Me'av, from my father. From my father. So ultimately, again, when the older daughter becomes pregnant, she named from her father, she names her child Me'av, Moab. Moab, out of all the nations, should have had such incredible hakar, so such incredible gratitude towards Cloud Israel. Why? Because the only reason Lot was saved from the destruction of stone was because of Avram Avinu. You're only here because of us. And everyone knows it. 
So the least you could do is that when your cousins are coming out of Egypt, offer us a little bit of bread and water. And by the way, even if you want to sell it, right? Even if you don't want to give it away for free, right? But at least give it to us at cost, right? At least charge us for it, but come out, be hospitable. And therefore, HaKadosh Baruch who sees that there's such a fundamental lack of humanity and such a fundamental lack of gratitude in this nation that Hashem says, don't let them in. Which, which is really incredible. Amalek, you want to convert, you're an Amalekite, you want to convert, we'll welcome you if you're sincere. But at the end of the day, Moab, Moab, after what you did, you have no cars at all, you have no gratitude, you have no basic sense of chesed, we don't want you as part of our nation. And the Rabbeinu Bachi says in our music, I'll tell you this outside. The Rabbeinu Bachi says, Derech Eretz hu lekadim haboim baderech b'maycholu b'mishta. Lo shahayu yusol chasirem b'midbar, shahare hamon yoreid lohem v'abe'er holichimon. So this, this is incredible. So the Rabbeinu Bachai says something fascinating. He says, to be very clear, we didn't need the bread and water of Midian. We didn't need it. Why didn't we need it? This is so profound. Why didn't we need it? Because we had man, and we had the miraculous bread, the miraculous well of Miriam, the schus of Miriam. So we didn't even need their bread and water. But when your mishpacha comes to town, when your mishpacha comes to town, the most basic act of human decency and kindness is to offer them bread and water. We didn't need their bread and water. We, we, were, we were Baruch Hashem. We were fully self-sufficient. God was taking care of our every need. We did not need them in order to sustain us. But how do you not make the offer to your mishpacha that's rolling through? How do you not make the offer to your mishpacha ultimately again that has just left Egypt? has just come out of 210 years of barbaric servitude. How do you not at least have the most basic common decency to say, you know what? Your Zayda took care of our Zayda. The least I'm going to do is go ahead and greet you with some bread and water. Okay, it doesn't have to be a potato kogo, right? It doesn't have to be a seven-course meal. It doesn't have to be anything fancy, but bread and water, basically our cars that help. So what's interesting is as follows. It wasn't just a lack of gratitude that, 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 was, that was present in Moab. It was a fundamental lack of humanity. It was just a fundamental lack of human decency. This is what you do for people who did something good for you in the past and for whom you have some basic relationship. Sakhalish Baruch who says, and by the way, even the order is interesting because remember again, the Pasik says that Moab did two things to us, right? Number one, they didn't greet us with bread and water. And number two, they hired Bilam. So you would have thought out of those two things, hiring Bilam to curse us and destroy us would be much worse, would be much worse than not greeting us with bread and water. And yet HaKadosh Baruch who puts the bread and water first before hiring of Bilam. It's almost as if, you know what, if you would have hired Bilam to curse us, to destroy us, I could almost even understand that a little bit. You were scared. You were scared that you think the Jewish people are going to take over your land, you're going to be dispossessed. But how do you lack basic human decency? How, how, how do you lack basic humanity, basic gratitude for what Avraham Avinu did for your grandfather? How, how do you do that? Nefer Kalash Baruch says, they have no place in the Jewish people. Now, what I want to point out to you is something amazing. That really, this was part of the genetic code of, of Moab. This is who they were. Because remember, we see this already in the in the in the. In the, um, in the generations which preceded Moab. For example, take a look at number 17. So the Torah says that, remember, lo, remember, mo, lo, I'm sorry, Moab comes from Lot and his daughters. So the Torah tells us, number 17, Remember again, when Lot and his wife and his daughters are escaping from stone, the Malach goes ahead and gives them one simple instruction, which is don't look back. Don't look back. And the wife of Lot disobeys and she looks back. And the Torah says that she became a pillar of salt. And Rashi number 18 says, why does she become a pillar of salt? And says Rashi, She sinned with salt and therefore she was punished with salt. What does this mean? When Lot brings home the malachim, he didn't know they were malachim, he thought they were men. And he brings home guests, he says to his wife, give them a little bit of salt. 
And she gives him a mission beirach, right? She gives it to him. She says to him, I don't understand you, Lot. Amra, Amra lo afa minak hara hazeh atabala hanik So she says to him, it's bad enough. It's bad enough that you brought home guests. But now you want to give them a little bit of salt as well? So you see already, even before there was a nation of Moabs. Remember again, the mother of Moab, the mother of Moab is the daughter of Lot, who was the daughter of this woman. The Medrash tells us Lot's wife's name was Iris. That was her name, Iris. So this was Iris. Iris was a profoundly inhospitable woman. Right? She doesn't want the guests. And when he asks her just for a little bit of salt to give them for their bread, she gives, she goes nuts on him. What are you talking? What are you doing? What are you talking about? I'm not giving anyone anything. So you see that this fundamental lack of kindness, this fundamental lack of basic human decency was already embedded in the nation of Moab from the beginning. Iris, remember again, if Lot is the father of Moab, Iris, so to speak, is the mother of Moab, right? Because the actual biological mother of Moab is the daughter of Iris. So embedded almost in the genetic code of this nation is a fundamental lack of human kindness, a fundamental lack of decency. And then Frakadish Baruch who says, Lo yavo amoni We don't want the nation of Moab. We don't, we, don't, we don't want them. We just don't want them. That it could be that Klavisa walks through the land, they don't even come through and offer bread and water, even to sell bread and water, they don't offer anything. Such a lack of human decency, we don't want as part of Cloud Israel. Such a lack of basic human kindness, we don't want. Unless you think that it was just, you know, an episodic occurrence. It's not true. Already from the beginning, this is who these people are. They're, they, they lack that basic human kindness, basic human decency. So I want to show you something amazing. So if you look at number 19, Pasek in Tehillim. Pasek in Tehillim, this is so beautiful. David Amalekh writes, Matsosi David Avdi, Beshemen Kadshi Meshachtiv. I found my servant, David. I found my servant, David. And the Medrash writes, where did HaKadosh Baruch Hu find David? Look at number 20. Amna Yitzchak Matsasi David Avdi, Heichen Matsasi also, this stone. Where did I find David? I found David in stone. Now, what, 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 what does that mean? I found David in stone? So perhaps what the Megillah is teaching us is as follows. If we bring this all together, I think we're going to explain it as follows. So remember, the entire essence of Megillah's Rus is to teach us the power of Chesed. And more specifically, more specifically, the monarchy's obligation to kind of create a top-down society of Chesed. It's all about Chesed. The king is to be the example of Chesed. But ultimately, again, we saw the Torah teaches us chesed. Beginning is chesed, middle is chesed, end of chesed. What does Megillah Rus come to add about the power of chesed? So perhaps the idea is as follows. Perhaps what Megillah Rus teaches us is that you could become a Baalas chesed even if it goes against the very grain of your identity. In other words, Rus teaches us the power of change. That personalistic change is possible. That even if I come from a family that is the antithesis of chesed, and even if I come from a nation that is the antithesis of chesed, I can choose to undergo personalistic change and transform myself into the person I truly need to become. Do you want to know why the Megillah constantly refers to Rus as Rus HaMoaviyah? It's not disparaging or chasas it's just the opposite, just the opposite. Telling us that even though Rus was a Moaviyah, Rus came from this nation, who was the, this nation was the antithesis of human kindness, the antithesis of basic gratitude, the antithesis of goodness. She transformed herself. She transformed herself. So Megillah's Rus doesn't just teach us about chasad, but it teaches us about the ability to transform myself into a person of chesed, even if I don't have it from my family, and even if I don't have it from my nation, and even if I don't have it from my culture. Megillah's Rus teaches us the power of personalistic change. Rus was brought up in a particular nation. Rus was brought up in a particular family. Rus was brought up in a particular culture. 
and a culture and a family and a nation which was the antithesis of human kindness, and yet Rus chooses to change herself. So there's really two lessons embedded over here. One, of course, well, three lessons, really. One is the power of chesed. One is the power of chesed. One is the ability to make yourself into a person of chesed, even if that's not your natural disposition. Right? You see, you have to understand something. Most people are not inherently kind. And most people are not inherently charitable. Right? Because people generally are default is to be egocentric, self-serving beings. That's why, again, the strongest instinct we have is self-preservation. The strongest instinct I have is survival. That's the strongest instinct because inherently my innate disposition is to worry about myself, to be egocentric. But yet what Rus teaches us is that even if that's your natural disposition, you have the ability to overcome it. The story of Rus is not just simply a story of chesed, because the importance of chesed I can get from the Torah. The story of Rus is that I have the ability to become a Baal chesed, even if it means going against my, my, my core nature, my core identity. I have the ability to remake myself into the most profound, giving, loving, caring, nurturing individual, even if that's not the home I grew up in, and even if it's not the community I grew up in, and even if it's not the people I grew up amongst, I have the ability to reshape my personality into who and what I want to become. And if we kind of enlarge that lesson a little bit, it's not just about chesed. What Rus really teaches us is about the power of personalistic change. You see, very often, we kind of assume that we are just the result of the circumstances of our lives. Right? So if I was brought up in a particular home, in a particular family, that's going to forge my personality in a certain way. I've had an easy life, a difficult life, a challenging life, a happy life. I have good parents, bad parents, positive relationships, not positive, good marriage, bad marriage. All these things are the things which dictate who and what I am. And what Ruth teaches us is as follows. Everything in life shapes our personality. But at the end of the day, we have the choice to make ourselves into the people we want to become. So if I had a, if I had a terrible upbringing, because not everybody has good parents. Not everybody has good parents. And some parents mean very well, but they're just really bad parents. Just really bad parents. And sometimes people, again, are surrounded by toxic relationships. And sometimes people are not brought up in nurturing communities. And sometimes there's a whole bunch of things working against me, just like Rus, just like Rus. But what Rus teaches us is I have the power to make myself who I want to be. I don't have the right to blame anyone for who I am. You know, it's very, it's wonderful to be able to blame other people for who I am, right? It's great. It would be so easy to say, oh, I wish my parents would have done a better job. But no, what could I do? They tried their best, but this is it. This is who I am. I can't be any better. And Rus comes along and says, it's true. Your parents shape you, but your parents don't make you. Your life circumstances shape you, but you they don't make you. The only thing in life that makes you is you. And if you don't like the you you are, remake yourself. Remake yourself. Ah, you'll say that's impossible. Open up Miguelas Ros. Rosamoavia, 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 Rosamoavia. Come on, leave the lady alone already. She converted. Drop the Moavia already. Drop it. To which the Megillah says, absolutely not. Shmuel is absolutely not because calling her Rosamoavia is the greatest accolade you could possibly give her because what you're broadcasting to the world is that here was a woman who came from a nation that was the antithesis of chesed who came from a home that was the antithesis of chesed who came from a community from a culture the antithesis of chesed and what does she become she becomes the paradigm of chesed rus teaches us the power of personalistic change and by the way so profound that remember Rus's greatest descendant is Mashiach. And Mashiach is the ultimate Baal Chasad, right? Because Mashiach is the one who brings the period of Geula, the ultimate Chasad for Klal Yisrael. So Mashiach, who brings the ultimate Chasad, ultimately comes from Rus, who is from the nation that was the antithesis of Chasad. 
personalistic change is possible. You just have to really want it. And that's the power of Megillah Rus. And by the way, once you understand this, you begin to really understand David HaMelech. Because think about this just for just a moment. If you, if you try to capture one of the most important lessons that David HaMelech has conveyed to us over the course of your learning Sefer Tillim, what is it? It's the power of change. Is that no matter how much you mess up in life, or no matter how many mistakes I make, no matter how many wrong turns or dead ends I hit, the power of change is always there. And that is the lesson that David Amalek drives home capital after capital, sentence after sentence, time after time. Change is always possible. You'll say, David, how do you know? How do you know? To which David Amalek would answer, because I come, I'm only here in this world because one woman decided to engage in personalistic, comprehensive, cathartic change. Only because my altar Baba decided to be different than the rest of her nation, that's why I'm here today. Had one simple woman by the name of Rosu really wasn't simple at all, had she not chosen to remake, recast, and reforge her identity, David Amala says, I would not be here today. And this is what Rus teaches us both. So we learn, we emerge with two profound lessons. Number one, the power of chesed. And again, we, it, you can't speak about chesed enough. The power of chesed, different forms of chesed, the chesed of companionship, Adam and Chava, the chesed for the dead, and the chesed of really not doing nice things for me, but doing nice things because I genuinely want to help the other. That's forms of chesed. The form of chesed that teaches us ultimately again that I can become a Baal chesed. Even if I am naturally selfish, naturally self-centered, innate focused on myself, I could become a good altruistic giving person. I could reshape my identity. And it's not just by chesed. Miguel Rus teaches us that if you're not happy with the person you see when you look in the mirror, don't lament it, change it. Unless you think that the identity you have is immutable, set in stone, and unchangeable, you know, you don't just have to read Megillah Rus on Shavuos. You could read Megillah Rus every single day. And just remember, the woman who is forever immortalized as Rus HaMoavia, because that title was not disparaging. That title was the greatest covet, that you could be a Moavia and remake yourself into whatever you want. That Koach, did not just belong to Rus. It's the great gift that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given to each of us as well. So whatever we need to change, whatever we want to change, however we want to go ahead and break with what was and create something new, that power resides within each of us. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu just give us the wisdom and the strength like Rus to be able to actualize it. We will stop over here for today and we will continue next week with Safer Tale. I'm wishing everyone a wonderful day, a great rest of the week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.